We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. specialist who writes about the intersection of science, technology, and culture. His work has appeared in Scientific American Mind, Psychology Today, Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, Chicago Tribune, Mental Floss, Slate, Salon, Esquire, and many other publications. And he is the writer behind the widely read blogs Neuropsyched, Neuronarrative, and The Daily Brain. So you should check those out if you, if you get a chance. Uh, David is the author of three books. His first nonfiction book, uh, it's called What Makes Your Brain Happy and Why You Should Do the Opposite. It has been published in 10 languages and is a bestseller. His second book, The Brain in Your Kitchen, is available uh, on Amazon outlets and in ebook format. And his latest book, Brain Changer, How Harnessing Your Brain's Power to Adapt Can Change Your Life, is available at all major booksellers. So we're going to be discussing the, those uh, two, uh, two of those books today, not The Brain in Your Kitchen uh, so much, but the, but the other two. So... Um, David, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Cool. Um, <clears throat> David, you, uh, when I read, uh, after reading both of your books and letting it kind of percolate, uh, the information percolate down after, uh, after for a few days, um, I mean, there's a lot of detail in there, and they're, they're excellent books in that they sum up, uh, or they bring together so much information from uh, the field of um, you know, cognitive psychology and all of the latest research and just put it all together there in a book for you. And there's some fascinating information there. But the general uh, message that I was left with was, and I suppose this is indicated by the title of the books, is that uh, people need to change their thinking. Uh, so uh, it's kind of a general question, I suppose, but is there something wrong with the way people think as in, in a general way, as a, you know, in, in terms of speaking for everybody, the whole human race? Uh, it's a great question, and, and it's really uh, not so much that there's something wrong with the way we think. It's that um, our brains have evolved to think in certain patterns. Um, we fall into certain thinking patterns, which become behavior patterns. Um, and it's, it's really very endemic to being human, so I can't really say there's something wrong with it because it's really true of all of us, but... But, yeah, you're, you're right in pointing out that the central theme of, of both books is really that we need to be more intentional about examining how we think. And um, in doing so, delve more deeply into the biases and distortions and delusions that are endemic to how we think. So, yes, it, it, it's about changing thinking, becoming better thinkers, um, really by leveraging, you know, what science has been able to reveal to us about how our brains work. Hmm. You mentioned uh, examining how we think, and uh, this notion of metacognition seems to be an essential 
topic you develop in, uh, in your book, in your work. So could you tell us more about this examining our thinking? Yeah, so um, the, first, the first book I wrote called What Makes Your Brain Happy and Why You Should Do the Opposite focused largely on a term you know, we've, we've now uh, has become commonly known called cognitive bias. And this is the slew of, uh, you know, 40 or more different, now I think, catalog biases that are endemic to how humans think and some of the common ones that we're, we're confronted with. Um, the, the book talks about a full range of them, but some of the common ones include confirmation bias, which is one we're all familiar with, where we find, when we're arguing a position, we tend to find evidence that supports our argument, and then when we're confronted with evidence that um, challenges our argument, we tend to discount that evidence. So we look for things to confirm our, our, our thinking. Um, some of the others, you know, one I talk about in the book is called restraint bias, which is our tendency to believe once we've, um, we, we can sort of fool ourselves into believing we've been able to control a particular behavior, say we're trying to quit smoking or, you know, institute a different diet or exercise routine. Once we think we've, we've gotten, once we believe we've gotten past the crest of controlling that behavior, we take, we let our guard down. Sure enough, we tend to backslide right back into that behavior. That's what yo-yo right. dieting is all about. Mm-hmm. So, so those are the kinds of things that you know are, are those are just part of the way we think as humans. And and really, what I wanted to do in these books dive into the research, the, the fantastic research that's been done in cognitive psychology, behavioral psychology, and neuroscience over the last twenty years, and and really pull out you know more of the credible some of the credible findings that have come out of that research that tell us why we think these ways and what can we do about it. You know, it's not enough just to point out problems. Um, there's plenty of books out there to do that. What, I, what I'm trying to do is point them out and also give some, some ways to actually, you know, address those things. Mm. Uh, it's really, actually, it's really important work, and it's very, I think it's very empowering, you know, because I think for most people, I'm thinking about my... I don't know why I'm thinking about my, my own dad here for some reason, that if I turned to him and said, you know, you've got a problem with the way you think, he would, like, you know, give me a very strange look. You know, he, I mean, I think generally speaking, people don't really know that there's a problem with the way they think. I mean, you could cite to them examples of, you know, in their lives how they, they ran into problems, made mistakes. And people generally kind of tend to blame that on, you know, external circumstances. It's nothing really to do with them, you know, or, you know, very often people will do that. And, uh, just to kind of um, to, to give people access to um, the information that shows that there's a kind of process going on in their in their thinking process that they're not even aware of that is leading them to kind of do things and act in certain ways that doesn't get them what they want is fundamentally a very empowering thing for for people if people will be open to it because I'm sure there's probably a lot of people who you know maybe reject the idea at all who tend to think that they have it figured out and their life's perfect and um but it's kind of strange as well in the sense that um, you talk about metacognition, which is, I think, the, the kind of idea of thinking about the way you think, which most people kind of don't do. And, and in fact, your books are an actual process of, of metacognition. People who read your books ultimately are forced to engage in, in, in metacognition, which uh, in, a, in a very particular way, because um, I'm sure people think about the way they think 
let's say they think about their thoughts, let's say they would say they think about what's going on and stuff, but it's not really in the, in the way that you're describing in your books, which is quite a critical thinking uh, approach to... Yeah, it's, it's, it's about levels of intentionality. You know, we, like you, you started saying, um, and I agree with you, you know, many people, maybe, maybe most people, when you, you, you know, say, well, have you thought about what you're, what, you know, this, this pattern that you seem to repeat, have you thought about it? And they say, no, you know, it's not something they've really thought about. And it's, it's a very interesting dynamic because it's not just a perceptual thing. This isn't just, you know, we're not talking in perceptions and metaphors here. This is actually a, a neural reality that the more you, um, you know, I like to think of it as, as the f- good physical uh, analogy might be, you know, somebody somebody who keeps, you know, keep working the same part of a, of a, a ground at a farm, let's say, with a hoe, and they keep going back and forth and making this ditch, and this ditch keeps getting deeper and more pronounced and deeper and more pronounced. And if you were to say to that person inside of the ditch that they've been hoeing back and forth for the last, let's say, 10, 15, 20 years, hey, you know, maybe that's not the right pattern. Maybe, maybe have you thought about maybe that's not? Well, of course, they're so, they're so deep into it. And in fact, their brains are so patterned into that same thinking behavior patterning, they haven't challenged it. And and so it's levels of intentionality. It's it's getting more intentional about about really challenging the way you think about something. And that may, and I think what makes people uncomfortable about that is that it may it may impose radical changes on their life. You know, when you when you start thinking differently, it logically follows that you will behave differently. You know, thought leads to action. You know, we we. To a very real degree, um, you know, our patterns of behavior throughout our lives all started as thought. You know, we, we at some point, you know, some catalyst in our in our thinking process led to that behavior. So it's uncomfortable to think you may have to change the way you've been living. You may have to change, you know, ingrained patterns of behavior. But, but yeah, exactly. That's what I want to convey, particularly in this last book, Brain Changer, which is about metacognition. Um, thinking about thinking. It's the intentional process of really examining, almost from a third-person perspective, how you are thinking. And then by getting that third-person perspective, you're able to more objectively figure out, wait a minute, this, you know, maybe, maybe what I've been thinking and doing here really isn't working. You know, Maybe I really can change, and that change will be beneficial to me. Maybe I don't have to be afraid of it. So... So yeah, your point is exactly right. That's 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 what I hope to convey with these books. And um, metacognition, thinking about the way we think, is not the uh, the whole story. I suppose to implement concrete changes in who we are, in the way we behave, uh, you have some uh, practical advices, methods. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, a big part of this book. This book is actually divided into three sections. So it's know, <clears throat> do, and expand. So the first part of the book is know, which is gaining knowledge about, you know, really really talking about what does the research tell us? You know, what has science been able to reveal for, for us about the way we think and why we think as we think? And then the second part, know, do, is this section that you're talking about with, with 30... Um, 
action-based sort of directives. I call them uh, brain-changer principles. And these are things that, um, these are sort of action, you know, the, the logical extensions and action from the research that's talked about in the first part of the book. So, you know, there's, there's things in here that, you know, some things will surprise people, simple things like um, um, chewing gum. There's an enormous amount of research about the, the cognitive benefits of chewing gum, believe it or not. Um, other things, you know, that, that will, be, will seem more obvious to people, but, again, it's about being more intentional about it, um, how well you assert yourself in situations. Um, thinking about your resilience, how resilient, how tenacious are you, it's, it, you know, working through kind of the mechanics of that. Um, other things have to do with the use of alcohol and, and smoking and other chemicals. So yeah, it, it's it's a that entire section of the book, you know, delves into just kind of a practical, um, you know, do oriented things that 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 just about anybody, um, you know, maybe not somebody could do all of these things, but there's something in there for, I think for just about anybody. Yeah, and here we can point out that unlike a a lot of books that I read about this topic, self-observation, changing, there are some very concrete tips about how to implement in a not so theoretic and difficult ways those changes. You also mentioned the quality of sleep and you have several, several tips about the, about the topic, uh, about 10, uh, 10 tips. So, yes, yeah, sleep, sleep is a big, big deal. Um, the more I did research for both of these books, the more I came to really appreciate just how important sleep is to the functioning, to the well-functioning of our brains. And it's something that we just discount, I think, as, as um, you know, in general. I think we discount the importance of sleep. We feel like we can get more done by sleeping less, you know. <laughs> for some reason, sleep is this part of our part of our days that we feel like we can we can trim off of, you know, in order to get more accomplished. But really the truth is there's a compounding negative effect from doing that. And there's a lot, actually several negative effects. Um, you know, one of the, the pieces of research out there about sleep uses this uh, metaphor of, of burning out our mental circuitry. That in fact, compounding um, sleep deficits over time lead to, in a very real sense, a, a burning out of our of our mental circuits. You know, our our brains are um, electrical organs. You know, they, we our our brains work on electrical impulses, and the connection between sleep and the well functioning of those electrical impulses is very very real. And it's something that I wish more people would educate themselves on because I think um, people would in general try to get more like seven or eight hours of sleep a night if they realized just how important it was to them, um, you know, not just on a day-to-day basis, but in their overall health moving forward in their lives. I mean, so many things now have been linked to, uh, negative things have been linked to sleep deficits. It's it's extremely important topic. Um, there's a, there, there's a phrase, I mean, there's a phrase, uh, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, you know, and a lot of people would ascribe to that, you know, <clears> or <throat> people use it as an excuse, I think, especially, you know, people who may be older or whatever age, you know, uh, that, you know, 
this is the way they do things, and it's not possible to uh, to really change ingrained patterns in that way. So you talk a little bit about in your first book in particular. You talk a little bit a bit about uh, brain plasticity and uh, that previously, I don't know how many years ago, it was thought that you know all of the development in, in the brain happens as when as children, and that once mm-hmm. that's set, that's it, you know. But you're saying now that it, 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 I mean. It can be changed. The brain is kind of there is a brain plasticity yeah. into later life. Yeah, what's really happened in the last 20 years of research is that the, the old notions of the brain being this static organ have really been thrown out the window. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that we, we believed that after the pruning period, um, typically in neuroscience parlance, it's referred to as the brain pruning period in adolescence, um, after our brains go through the, the, the process of, of kind of trimming down the number of, of uh, neurons available to us, that after that it was done. Your brain was a static organ and you carried it through the rest of your life as it was and really the only direction you'd be going at that point was down, you know, over time. Mm-hmm. It's just the, the, the on, you know, the, the steady oncoming decline that... that we've come to believe is just natural uh, for all of us to experience. Thankfully, though, research has, has uncovered over the last 20 years that this just is not the case, that there are parts of the adult brain which are always dynamic. Um, brain plasticity is the general term that this, this kind of research is, falls under. And it means, you know, the, the term plasticity is, is a direct reference to to plastic being malleable. You know, there are parts mm-hmm. of our brains that are malleable, that are changeable. And um, and that there's areas in our brains that actually do grow new neurons, new brain cells. We we thought not even fifteen years ago this was this was not an accepted scientific understanding that our brains were capable of what's called neurogenesis, the creation of new brain cells. And come to find out that there are significant brain areas that are capable of neurogenesis. And now a lot of the research that's been done regarding antidepressants, um, in the, particularly antidepressants in the, the SSRI category, um, is leading us to believe that, that these drugs may in part be catalyzing neurogenesis, that the reason why they may work in about 60% of the people who take them is because they're, they're catalyzing the growth of new brain cells and parts of their brain that... that, that need that sort of refresh or reset. So, so yeah, we have to get away from these old notions of the static brain. Our brains are not mm-hmm. static. Um, mm-hmm. And, it, you know, I think that's a very empowering um, mm-hmm. um, thing to, to, to come to understand is that, you know, we're, I mean, now when I think about, you know, the old understanding of our brain just being this static hunk of, you know, magic clay in our heads, I mean, that's really kind of depressing. Mm-hmm. Um you know, to think that you can't change. I mean, basically what that's saying is you can't change. Like you started your comment saying, can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, that kind mm-hmm. of, you know, that understanding, that former understanding kind of codified that idea that you really can't mm-hmm. change. But thankfully we now know and we have a well-grounded in the science understanding. This isn't just, you know, platitude. This is scientifically grounded. That our brains are dynamic. They are not static. And yeah, that, that to me, is a, is, a, is a great thing to know. Yeah. Maybe that phrase, can't teach an old dog new tricks, is, is evidence of you know, people in the past, people who have tried to change their habits, tried to change their behavior, and it's actually difficult. 
So they just come up with that uh, that answer just to avoid having to go through the process because it is, like you mentioned a little bit already, it is. Um, it can be quite difficult, the process that you're talking about. You're talking about, you know, wakening up or recognizing kind of habits uh, that maybe aren't, you know, that maybe you're not exactly proud of or, you know, that don't reflect positively on, on you, you know, that you're stuck in a rut right. in a certain form of behavior. Um, but so it, it is difficult to do. But, I mean, when you talk about brain plasticity, are you talking about actual neuropath, new neural pathways being kind of created within the brain i mean is that yes that's part of, that's that's part of it like i say neuroplasticity is is just kind of this rubric term that a lot of different components of the research fall under but part of it is is yes is that is that new neural patterns um can be created another part of it is neurogenesis that new brain cells can be created mm. um so that and, and you know, thinking we, we're well reminded to to you know to know that thinking is a physical thing, right? Thinking is a physical process that happens in our brains. Just because it occurs to us perceptually, we think of things perceptually, but those perceptions have physical physical counterparts going on in our brains. So thinking is a physical process, and so changing thinking is changing a physical process in our brains. Um, when we talk about metacognition, we're not just talking about something that's theoretical. We're talking about an actual neural process that's engaged in our brains when we change the way we think. So, you know, in all these cases, in, in the books, I try to make this clear. There's kind of you have to look at the two two sides of this apple, right? The one side is how we how things occur to us and how we experience things perceptually. Right? Thought is, is experienced by us perceptually. It's abstract. The other side of the apple is what's physically going on inside of our head. For every abstraction that we experience, there's a physical corollary happening in our brains. So, you know, everything we talk about, in a way, has to do with changing your brain. I mean, you know, actual, real changes that occur in your brain. Mm-hmm. And so that's the exciting part of this to me. Is that, is that now that we know the brain is a dynamic organ, not a static tissue, hunk of tissue, um, we understand better what's going on when we change patterns of thought and behavior. That, in fact, there are new neural pathways being laid down in our brains when that happens. And it, that's, that's a very empowering thing, I think. Indeed. And to implement those changes, if I understood you correctly, while you are living your life and thinking your thoughts and doing uh, what you do, you're supposed to somehow freeze time, step outside the situation, observe the situation in yourself, what you think, what you're about to say, what you're about to do, what you're about to feel as well, and somehow redirect uh, on the intellectual level and uh, emotional level what is going to happen. Yeah, in, in, in Brain Changer, I talk about one of the tools I talk about in the do section is I call it the awareness wedge, which is um, mm-hmm. which is kind of what you're talking about. And the aware, I call it the awareness wedge because I think of it as an actual wedge. Um, if you think of a wedge kind of being forced down in between your your present state of thinking and your the next step in the thinking process, mm-hmm. 
and and this has a very robust uh, underpinning in the scientific literature. It's, it's other other terms for it are uh, cognitive pause or tactical pause or advanced cog- semantic pause. There's a lot of different terms that are used in the literature for this, but but basically, yes. What it, what it means is that we 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 stop momentarily. We assume a sort of third person position where we're engaging, intentionally engaging our metacognitive capabilities. And again, the, the metacognitive capability is being able to think about your thinking from a detached position. So, you, you know, one of the classic examples I've used of this when I, when I talk about this is, you know, when you're in your, in your car on the highway and someone cuts you off in traffic, you know, and you're already in a bad mood, you're late to work or whatever, and, you know, somebody cuts you off and, you, you're you're at your breaking point, and you know you first thing you want to do is open your window and start shouting at this person, or, or doing something else, or sending certain messages. Um, and and we know that you know I mean when we're reading about these things that happen in the news, we we we're reading about it from a detached position. You know somebody did this on the highway, and somebody else pulled out a gun and shot that person. It's a tragedy. You know. Wouldn't it be great if if we could assume a third-person position in the moment and stop the entire thing from happening? Um, We don't don't have to be sort of slaves to our impulse. We have the ability to insert this wedge, and we don't have to become the tragedy the other people are looking at from a third-person position on (laughs) on the news. Um, That's that's an extreme example, but it, it, it kind of sends the point home, I think, which is, there are things that we, we we think and do that if we do not insert that wedge, we may harshly regret um, very quickly. And metacognition is the internal tool that we have. It's what nature has given us to change the situation, to assert a greater level of executive control, um, you know, the, the prefrontal cortex of our brain is often called the command and control center of our brain. It's the most recently evolved part of our brain. And it's where higher level thinking occurs. And it's where metacognition occurs. It's where we have this capacity to think about our thinking. Um, we've all got this. It's a great, great capacity, great tool we've got. We're carrying around between our ears. We've just got to get more intentional about using it. Mm. That kind of gets into, um, I mean, from your from your first book, again, um, you you mentioned that. Uh, I mean, you make pretty much make the statement that we're not rational beings. You know, there's all this idea that uh, there's been the idea for a long time that human humanity and human races, uh, man is a rational being and stuff. You know, um, right. but you say that's not true. We're not rational beings, and in fact, we're hardwired from the beginning to to be uh, threat sensitive that's pretty much yeah the, the old idea of of the this this idea you know really really found its home in, in economics um that the man is a rational actor um and that we uh it's it's, it's really i marvel now thinking thinking about this that this actually this idea actually took hold for the centuries that it did and that we believed it Mm-hmm. Um, that <laughs> people that people always act rationally. Um, 
Yeah, well, simply not true. The state of the world. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the proof is the proof is evident you know, all around yeah. it. Um, it's it's what's clear from from what science has revealed. You know, neuroscience and cognitive psychology has revealed, revealed that we can certainly, by engaging more intentionally, um, metacognition and and other thought processes, that we be, we become more rational. We can certainly certainly have the ability to become more rational actors. We are not innately so, however. And the evidence, as I discussed in the first book, is, you just pointed out, is, is that our brains, when, when left to their own devices, um, operate on the principles that have kind of ensured our you know, physical survival, which is that we are very threat sensitive, um, uncertainty, instability, um, insecurity, these things are threats. Um, very, you know, just as just as somebody in physical environment, you know, coming at us with a knife or a gun is a physical threat. Mm-hmm. The the more ambiguous ideas, just feeling uncertain, feeling um, not right, feeling unstable. These are mm-hmm. these are threats to our brain, mm-hmm. and our brains react the way we've evolved to react, which is to. Um, to, to kind of shut ourselves down from those things, and to and you know when I talk about a happy brain in the first book, you know the book's title is a bit tongue in cheek. What mm-hmm. makes your brain happy, and why you should do the opposite? What mm-hmm. makes your brain happy is being threat sensitive, um, because that is a naturally evolved tendency of our brain. Why we have to learn to do the opposite is because that that tendency that asserts itself does not suit all the situations we find ourselves in. Um, we have to kind of remind ourselves, we didn't really evolve to be in these heavy technology-laden, mm. consumerist, you know, driven, information-driven cultures. This wasn't, you know, this is, this is, this is not how we, we grew up <laughs> as a species, yeah. so to speak. <clears throat> um, so our brains don't perfectly overlay with these environments that we, that, that we live in. The grand irony of that is that our brains created this environment. Everything that's mm-hmm. around us, our cultures that we live in, this is, these are all creations of our brains. So it's a bit of an irony that we find ourselves living in, which is we're just not perfectly suited to live in this world that we created. Mm-hmm. And we, we have to find different ways to adapt. And that's what the second book is really about. It's about adapting our thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, I- to, to better match the environment. I suppose the um, the idea of being threat sensitive could also involve uh, an aspect of kind of being programmed, maybe at an early age in life, uh, you know, having reactions instead, or you know, programs. Essentially, I use the word programs almost like uh, neural pathways set up within us as a result of experiences as a child uh, that were threatening, <clears throat> but that. And that as an adult, they're, they're no longer threatening, let's say, because, let's say, uh, you're an adult and you're able to deal with a situation far better than a child could, but you still have that mm-hmm. reaction laid, laid down in your brain, and you're going to react that way. And that's why I suppose you get a lot of, a lot of people, get, a lot of adults get accused of acting like, a, <laughs> acting like a child. And in fact, maybe they are, almost literally. They're acting on childhood neural kind of pathways laid down. Uh, I think that's very true, and I think I think a lot of the, the research that's been done in uh, 
bullying has become a big topic of of research in the last 10 years. And it's very important research because a lot of what it's telling us is that is that bullying behavior in these early stages of our lives um, do trigger changes in our brains that become patterns well into our adult lives. We may never break out of those patterns. If, if we if we aren't intentional about challenging that, perhaps you know, engage a, a tool like therapy, talk therapy, that it, that it helps mm-hmm. us to become, you know, because talk therapy really, what it really does is it helps us to be more intentional about our thinking. That's really what it boils down to. And what we've come to understand in these bullying studies is that is that exactly what you just said. I mean, triggers can happen early in life that, that will frame a person's life into adulthood if they are never challenged, if they're never understood um, mm-hmm. and this can have just severe severe ramifications it does have severe ramifications in, in in many different walks of life and it's it's about time that we we came to terms with this and I think you know the focus on bullying to me is so important because as a father with I have three young kids I really think about this a lot and um, you know, think about the impressions that are left on the developing brain. Um, because even though the brain is dynamic throughout adulthood, it is still true that it is the most affected in childhood and adolescence. The, 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 the most profound imprints, if you will, on the brain occur in childhood and adolescence because that is the period in which the brain is the most um, in flux if you will. It's the most dynamic. And, you know, what happens to us in those periods, it does, it does nothing, you know, it doesn't necessarily condemn us to a life of a particular pattern, um, much, the, much the opposite. My, my argument is that none of us need to be condemned in such a way. But it is true that those imprints that occur are very, very real, and they can have, you know, huge impact later on in life. Yeah, imprinting can shape uh, your behavior, your thinking, and your emotional life. Uh, this yeah. fear, all this hate, this anger, this sadness. So, what about emotions? Are they all legitimate? Shall we express them? Shall we repress them? If we express them, how can we express them uh, in a healthy way? Can we redirect them? Can you tell us more about emotions? Well, um, uh, yeah, emotions are, of course, a very another very rich, robust part of the, the, the research literature, and um, it's it's interesting that kind of where people fall on the, the question of emotions really depends on kind of what school of psychological thought they tend to fall into. I tend to be uh, more on the side of cognitive behavioral uh, research, which is the school of psychological thought that was founded by Aaron Beck and a few other great thinkers that asserts that we can change our emotional response by changing our thinking. So it draws a, it draws a, a direct uh, correlation between the emotional, our emotional response out in the world with what our thoughts are internally. And, um, you know, and I think that form of, you know, the therapy that's, that's embodied in it is, is CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and I think that form of therapy has increasingly become um, 
kind of the preferred form of talk therapy because it works. I mean, and really, you know, I have to underscore this because I use the book, I use the word so often in my second book, pragmatic. I am a pragmatist. You know, at the end of the day, I want, I want what works. Mm. And I believe, again, from my perspective, that cognitive behavioral therapy, the, the cognitive behavioral school of thought, is the most pragmatically efficient school of thought because it actually works. People are able to change how they react emotionally by getting a better handle on their thinking. Um, and so, you know, there's there's parts of my second book, Brain Changer, that, that kind of go into this in more detail, but... Um, and I and I won't belabor the the, the the fine points here, but part of understanding that is understanding the the, the pattern of an emotional response. There's been a lot of research yeah. that kind of breaks down the phases of an emotional response. It's not just just because we experience something so quickly doesn't mean it's actually happened so quickly. That there's you know there's there there are different phases that lead up to an outburst of anger or um, or on the other side, you know, an outburst of, of, of joy or, or other positive emotion. And so part of what being more intentional about our thinking means there is that we need to think more about what those phases or levels are that lead to the emotional response. We don't just automatically have to have an angry outburst. Mm. We don't just automatically have to break down in tears. We don't just automatically have, you know, we're kind of enculturated to think that, that emotions are automatic in that way, but they're not. They have multiple underpinnings that, again, all occur in this world of thought. Um, now, I'm not saying I've been accused of this, so let me let me make this point clear. I'm not I'm not Dr. Spock from Star Trek, and I'm not saying mm-hmm. that <laughs> I'm not saying that we can become unemotional or that there's any benefit in becoming unemotional. Let me make that very clear. Um, I'm I'm a, a, a Sicilian by descent, and let me tell you, emotions run strong in my in my ethnic heritage, and I and I yeah. own that. So, so I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that we need to be more intentional about how we think in such a way that our emotions are p- perhaps um, more appropriate for the situation, and more in proportion to the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, quite typically, when, when we say someone has a, quote, emotional problem, what we really mean is that their, their emotions seem to be out of proportion for the triggers that, are, that they're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Now, an, an anger management problem, what is that really? Is it that someone's angry? No, anger is a natural emotion. The problem is, is that their anger appears to be out of proportion to the triggers they experience in their life. So, again, it's not a question of not being angry. That, that, that would be a horrible idea. There's perfectly good reasons to be angry. Mm-hmm. The, the issue is how can you bring your anger more in proportion with what you're experiencing in your life? And that's what cognitive behavioral therapy is really all about. It's, about. it's about being more intentional about your thinking so that you can respond emotionally in ways that are more proportion, proportionally adequate um, you know, for, for your mm-hmm. life, what you're, for what you're experiencing. Yeah, because... I mean that's it's almost it's essential I think uh, for anybody who wants to aspires to live a kind of happier, more balanced life to to think about that and to think about getting a handle on their emotions because emotions are in family environments and amongst friends and in society in general emotions are the things uh, 
when they're when they're out of control type of thing that'll lead to you know all sorts of pain and heartache and suffering you know from among many people and they can also lead to freaking wars and stuff you know so, yeah I mean, yeah no no question and and, yeah. and this is kind of the point the point is point is not that we should we should try to be cold rational beings the the, the point is that we just need to we just need to be more intentional about all these parts of our life so that we can we can react i mean emotion expressed well expressed proportionally well is extremely healthy yeah. it's it's healthy whether one when you're expressing a positive emotion or when you're expressing a negative emotion you know we we tend to we frame things up in, in these dualities in our culture and it's it's very toxic thinking mm. positive negative emotion when we say negative you know we say um, regret is a negative emotion. We don't want to ever experience regret. Well, in the first book, I talk about, I kind of, I kind of deconstruct regret as an emotion. Is it true we never want to express it? Or is it true possibly that regret is an emotional response that has a very practical underpinning, which is it helps us learn from something we've done to not make the same error again? Mm-hmm. See, when you frame when you frame emotions, when you get out of bifurcated thinking, negative positive, and you and you frame things up in a more pragmatic way, you can kind of link up even the most negative emotions with, um, well, if you will, reasons. Um, so, getting a handle on all of this puts us in a first. It first and foremost puts us in a better position to manage our own lives. Mm-hmm. Because the problems we typically have in managing our own lives is that the triggers we experience, whether those triggers are, are other people, uh, other situations, jobs, family, world crises, etc., how we respond to those things to, is, is the coloration of our life, right? We, we, the, the, how we experience life is largely how we respond to what happens around us and to us. So... You know, the argument is becoming more intentional about our thinking helps us to become better adapters to our lives. We become, we be, we're able to manage these situations more effectively. Mm-hmm. And by doing so, my argument is, and, and this, is, this is an argument throughout all, everything I write, really, is that we become more fulfilled. Um, people who, yeah. people who, who more effectively manage their lives tend to be more fulfilled. Mm-hmm. People who have uh, a hard time managing their lives tend to be less so. Yeah, and there's also some, uh, maybe some evidence of, you know, people who are having a hard time managing their lives, suffering physically as well in terms of having poorer health. And um, Yes. I don't know if you're aware yeah. of uh, Dr. Gabor Mate. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He's a Canadian. Not, not familiar with the name, no. Right, yeah. He talks about that, about, you know, about essentially kind of what you're saying, uh, but he goes further and says that, you know, about expressing emotions is, is extremely important uh, from a health point of view because there's been lots of studies done um, uh, with people with various chronic illnesses and stuff and uh, kind of almost across the board, these, all, all these people have a kind of a history, at least in one aspect, have a history of, uh, of repressing their emotions and being kind of browbeaten or in a, in a, in a, in a bad relationship type thing, you know? Yeah, there's there's really no question about that any longer. I mean, there's been some research done recently that's really mind blowing. Um, you know, for a long time we've we've kind of anecdotally believed that cancer is linked to stress, and mm. 
there really isn't any research out there that makes a firm A to B causal connection between cancer and stress. But very recently, there's been some research to show quite convincingly cancer is um, that that cancer cells are indeed fed by stress, by higher levels of stress, mm. higher levels of the stress hormone cortisol, higher levels of adrenaline. These things can certainly make a cancer tumor grow. And so, yeah, it, I mean, the, the point is well taken, and it's something we all need to, we all need to think about. Um, this isn't just about thought and emotion. This isn't about abstraction. This is about what's happening to your body. Hmm. Um, there, there's no question that, in, in my mind, and I think the science well supports this at this point, that... Um, our emotional responses have have direct biological corollaries that there are uh, increasing. I mean, we know this, you know, heart disease is the number one killer in the United States for men and women. And there is a wealth of, of research literature showing the connections between what are essentially the mismanagement of emotional responses and heart disease. It's not just all. It's not just all about cholesterol and um, triglycerides and, and lipids and so forth. This has a lot to do with how we think and our emotional response. So it's, it's an extremely important point that you made. Hmm. You uh, you mentioned <coughs> sorry. You mentioned a common experience that probably a lot of people have. I've had it anyway. Driving down driving down the road and. Uh, uh, after a few minutes, realizing that you kind of weren't there for the past few minutes, you know, and it yeah, kind of freaks yes. me out. Uh-huh. Kind of freak, freaks me out now and again because I wonder who was who was driving, you know, making all those subtle maneuvers in the car and avoiding the pedestrians and stuff. Who was doing that, you know? Because I wasn't there. I right. don't remember, you know. And um, <clears throat> but then you you kind of talk about that as uh, switching on to autopilot and that it's uh, an area of intense uh, interest to cognitive scientists. And you also say that the the consensus is that most people spend somewhere between 30 and 50% of their day in this autopilot state. Um, yes. I'm just wondering, that's, that doesn't seem like a good thing in the sense of try, if someone's trying to, to become more aware of um, you know, the thought processes. If they're kind of not there, then they can't, can't do that, right? Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a really interesting area. Uh, in, in the research right now, and, and like you say, there's been some 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 studies um, in the last just couple of years that um, have tried to quantify the amount of time that we spend drifting. Um, you know, we spend in this this autopilot drift, if you will, and yeah, it seems to be a, a considerable amount of time um, that that we're just not quite there. Mm. And, and this is really interesting because what it's kind of getting to is this question of, of conscious and unconscious thought. And so we, we know that if you, if, you took the, if you took the brain and you tried to break it down to percentages of what is conscious, you know, what part of our thought is conscious and, and what is unconscious, the vast, vast majority of what's going on is unconscious. And this is very easily understood when you think about everything that's going on in your body all the time that you're not having to think about doing. Um, mm-hmm. You don't have to think. You don't have to think about controlling your heart 
pumping blood. You don't have to think about um, your lungs working. You don't think you have to think about your nervous system working properly. Um, there, there's a fair amount of automatic muscle movements that we don't have to think about. So it's the unconscious mind is responsible for all in all these things, and, and it's being referred to in the most recent research is calling this the modular mind. That the unconscious mind is really this this kind of fast network of modular processing centers um, that control all of this stuff that's happening 24-7 um, in our bodies. And so then there's this very, very, relatively speaking, small percentage of things that we're able to control consciously. And, and it's been broken down... Um, there's been some, you know, there's always attempts at quantification uh, of these things. It's difficult to get, a, obviously, a, a very firm beat on something like like this. But mm-hmm. um, some re- some research has said that our unconscious brain processes about 11 million different things a second, mm-hmm. and our conscious, um, I'm sorry, our unconscious mind, while our conscious mind processes about 40 things a second. So, oh. you know, again. You know, you don't have to worry about being precise with the numbers. The point is, the point is obvious enough. It's a mm-hmm. very small amount of things, relatively speaking, that we can consciously influence. The question is, how how much of that conscious processing power are we really engaging? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, this the research that's been done on how much time we kind of spend drifting is interesting because it's kind of getting to the point of, you know. Is is what we consider to be conscious thinking, all, you know, just in the outward kind of, you know, what we've, everybody has an idea of what conscious thinking is. It's like the, you, the idea of being awake, right, being mm-hmm. awake to the moment. That's conscious thinking. But what the research seems to be telling us is that there's some elements of conscious thinking even that is not quite conscious. Brains seem to mm. kind of operate in this... Um, I, I kind of think of it as kind of a front room, back room scenario. You know, there's, there's, take an office, you know, kind of picture an office space, and there's a, there's a front, smaller front room that's consciousness, and there's maybe two or three people sitting there. And then there's this back room that's closed off, mm. and there's about 500 people in there mm-hmm. working. Like a warehouse. And, and the question is, are those two areas really as kind of distinct as we we kind of think they are, or is there this interplay going on that it seems to be showing up in this research about drifting, about rumination? Mm. Um, and, and it's really interesting stuff. And there hasn't, you know, there's nothing, there's no kind of firm conclusions about this yet about why we do this, about why we seem to spend so much time ruminating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when reading your book. Obviously, us human beings spend a lot of time, as you say, drifting with conscious mind being inactive. And we also spend a lot of time when the conscious mind is active, it is creating narratives to maintain the illusion that it is in charge, that we are kind of one and there is some kind of consistency in our our life. (laughs) Right, right, right. So can you tell us more about those narratives and this illusion (laughs) of consistency? Yeah, I'm laughing only because um, it strikes me that the, the, the conversation we're having, which I've had on a few different occasions, can lead people toward the conclusion that there's, 
it's kind of just a big question mark at the end of all of this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very, very difficult to arrive at any conclusion. And, and while it's true that it is difficult to arrive at conclusions because there's so much we don't know about the brain, um, it's still, it's still really, really interesting to, to, to talk about the research. And, and so what you're, yeah, what you're, you're alluding to is, you know, the, um, you know, this idea that we, you know, are we are we a unified self, or are we selves? You know, we have had this question for a long time. I mean, it's really an ancient question. Um, and the the latest research, there isn't really a consensus about this, but but I think that the research is leaning in the direction of saying that really we're we're not a self. Mm. We 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 have multiple ways of interacting with the world, but our brains have adapted to construct, as you say, a narrative which ties these selves together into a unified whole, the I, you know, the self. Um, and, and there's great, great books on this out there. Um, I, I talk about a number of them, particularly in my first book. Mm-hmm. And I, I encourage people to read about it because it's a really interesting study. But... But yeah, it it's it's really comes down to our brains have been able to adapt um you know, to to that the best way for us to interact with the world is not as a fragmented multiple um persona or personas. It's as a unified whole. And so mm. you know, we we're fortunate that that's the case. Now, we know practically speaking how this works, right? Because the way you speak to somebody at work um, or the way you interact with people at work is not the same way you interact with people at a party. Mm-hmm. Um, the way you talk to your mother is not the same way you talk to your best friend. Mm-hmm. We, we have, there's a multitude of examples that show exactly how this, how, you know, how this works. We know, for, we know, practically speaking, that we, we put on different hats all the time. Yet our brains are extremely efficient at enabling this narrative, which keeps us together. Now, a lot of the research on schizophrenia would seem to indicate that part of what's going on in the schizophrenic brain is that that narrative linking, that narrative thread is missing or is damaged, such that the cells are not held together. Mm -hmm. Um, And it makes a lot of sense if you think about, you know, what we know of schizophrenia. Yeah, it's um, it's actually quite a a scary topic if you think too much about it. I mean, just I'm yeah, getting exactly. back to it, the <laughs> idea of. <clears throat> I mean, there's a book I read uh, by you, you mentioned. I'm actually, I think it's Daniel Kahneman. Yes, Kahneman. Yeah. Yeah, the kind of research he did, and he came up with this uh, system one and system two to describe these two brains type of thing. You know. And right. Right. Like you kind of uh, mentioned that there's all this processing of data going on in the background far more than happens in the foreground, the conscious self. And, um, I mean, in your, in your books as well, you give uh, plenty of examples that, uh, <clears throat> that, that really bring that point home that there's stuff going on that we're not aware of that is influencing our decisions, you know, unconsciously. Like, I mean, you, you cite an example of a, a, a test um, or a study done where people who walked into a building were given uh, either a hot drink or a cold drink. And then they were asked to um, fill in a questionnaire about how they 
how they felt about one of their close friends. And the people who got the hot drink uh, were were more kind of felt warmer, let's say, or closer to their friends <laughs> than the people yeah. who got the cold drink. And I mean, it's at that level that, that you know, we're, we're, there's data being transmitted to this part of the mind that is unconscious. And it's then, trans, you know, feeding it back to the conscious mind, telling it how to decide. But the conscious mind has no idea why it's doing it. It's doing it based on this, this subtle data that, you know, this other part of the brain is picking up on. That's, that's exactly right. And that is exactly why we are not innately rational actors. We are not, yeah. innately, the humans are not innately rational because so much of what influences our thought and behavior is happening in this kind of backroom process. Um, mm-hmm. Like you say, the study, there's been there's a, there's a plethora of research about um, um, tangible things, to, you know, temperature, weight, um, hardness, softness, whatever, of objects affecting our thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another another research along the same lines of what you mentioned about when people um, are going to a job interview, the, whether the chair they're sitting in tends to be more rigid or more comfortable affects their performance in the interview. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's just a there's a bevy of these things, and and so. Yeah, that's what a lot of this research is getting to. Is, you know, we don't full, we just don't fully understand the interplay between consciousness and, un, and unconscious thought, or what we've come to think of as unconscious thought. I kind of think that these that even these terms are going to change. Um, yeah. That these categories we have of conscious and unconscious, that those will eventually change because right now it's the best way we can kind of categorize things. But I think over time, what, the, what the science is going to reveal more and more is that these these lines, these categorical lines that we've put between these these, these boundaries between these things don't really exist. Mm-hmm. Um, that there's there's an ongoing interplay that kind of blurs the lines mm-hmm. much more than we much more than we that we currently appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a. I mean, when I read stories like that about how people are influenced, you know, unconsciously and stuff, it reminds me of um, I was uh, I was going to my brother's wedding at one time, and uh, we had just gone down and got fitted for cost suits or whatever, and um, we were driving back, and he was driving, and we stopped at a traffic light, and he looked up and he saw a, a poster, a billboard sign for Budweiser beer, you know, it was uh, a, a bottle of Budweiser with a cap turned upside down that said King of Beers. And he looked at looked at that, looked at me, and said, "You know, what are those, are those people really think that that's going to influence anybody's, you know, uh, decision making? Kind of ridiculous, you know. It's stupid." So he was very dismissive of it, you know. About an hour later, we're in the bar, and we walked up to the bar, and you can imagine what happened next. We walked up to the bar, and uh, he had no idea. He said to me, "What do you want?" That he said, "I don't know." And he said, "I asked him, what are you, what are you going to have?" And he said, uh, "He thought, and he just really didn't know. He just said, oh, I'll have a Budweiser.'" You know? So I mean, and I was gonna say something to him, you know, but I just went, nah, I'm not gonna bother, you know. Uh, and that's and that's with, with that's with something that's kind of overt, you know, like he actually saw a, a billboard. But the more subtle yeah. stuff that you describe in your books, like just little, I mean, even the cold, warm thing, or the the, the the back of the chair, that no one would ever think is going to influence. You know anything really? You know that? You know if you, if you ask a person, you know that that is no that has no bearing on my decision, or that has no bearing on anything. You know, but it does. Right. Well, and that's a great that's a great example because there's a case where he actually did consciously, intentionally identify something he, that he thought 
you know, you looked at the ad, you kind of deconstructed it and said, well, this mm. is it's odd that this would influence anyone's behavior, and then moments later, yeah, he's being influenced by it. Exactly. So if it's that's the case, ima- imagine how much stuff happens to us. All, you know, we're experiencing all the time that we're not intentionally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That we're influenced by. Yeah. Yeah. Um, David, we're we're getting uh, close to the end time here. We probably should uh, wrap it up. Um, it's been great having you on. Um, your books are excellent. Just going to give a shout out again. Two books, mainly What Makes Your Brain Happy and Why You Should Do the Opposite, and the newest one, Brain Changer: How Harnessing Your Brain's Power to Adapt Can Change Your Life. They're excellent books, full, packed full Thank of information you. that everybody needs to to know and be aware of and act on. And we can maybe change the world if everybody gets a copy. Easy to read and full of practical tips yeah. to change and have a better life. Really. Absolutely. Oh, Th- thanks very much, and, and, and I think I, I, I hope people will read the books. I also there's a new project I'm in part in. It's called YourBrainChannel.com. Okay. Um, if your li- listeners can visit YourBrainChannel.com, it's a new project that I'm involved in. That's that's kind of creating a one-stop shop for knowledge about all things mind, all things brain and mind, and um, just just kicked it off this week. So. If anyone has an opportunity to go out there and, and check that out as well. And my your website is, da- you know, your, it's just yourbrainchannel.com. Yourbrainchannel.com, okay, cool. And your website is? My website is just daviddesalvo.org. Yeah. Um, okay. People can find out more about me and the books and, and other things there. All right. Okay, thanks a million, David, for being on. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, no problem. Thank Take you very much, Have a David. Good one. It was a pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, folks. Uh, it's going to be a short one this week um, because we have things to do, uh, places to go, people to see, uh, thoughts to analyze. And our brains to change. Yeah, we've got our brains to change. You should all do the same. <clears throat> uh, you know, there's other books like this out there that uh, seems to be a very popular genre these days. Um People can check uh, the psychology section on our forum for a lot of information about uh, this book and these these, these books and, and other books of, of a similar nature. But it's really uh, it's really important information to be honest. I mean, it's kind of ultimately potentially life changing. Yeah, and uh, in this field, I found basically two kind of books, two categories: the one that are very abstract, neuroscience, and uh, theoretical mm-hmm. and the ones that are practical but kind of shallow you yeah. know yeah. then uh, a way to become an efficient individual and here David he brings the best of both sides mm-hmm. a very sound theoretical background with a sound practical application yeah so yes yeah, it's, it's really a must read and as I said uh, it's easy to read so this brain gender book is a uh, it brings also a lot of different topics Together, mm-hmm. there's not only neuroscience. There's a bit, uh, a little bit about nutrition, about sleeping, about mm-hmm. uh, we say emotion, about behavior, self-observation, mm-hmm. and a lot of uh, exercise, uh, a lot of things. Uh, yeah, are approached in this book. All right, folks, we're going to leave it there. And um, next week, uh, oops. next week, sorry, that little glitch there. Uh, next week, we will be interviewing Gilad Atzmon. If you don't know who Gilad Atzmon, that's G-I-L-A-D-A-T-Z-M-O-N, is, you should uh, look him up. Uh, That'll be a good one. Until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for our chatters. And have a good one.
Bye bye. Thank you.